The Battle of Marja in 2010 was a signature Marine engagement of the war in Afghanistan. This episode is the second and final part of my conversation with O.C. Best, who served in that battle as a young platoon commander and who went on to a second deployment in Afghanistan the following year. He tells the stories of the Marines he led, the Afghans he led, and the legacy of the war, including its physical legacy personally for him and the challenges that he faces today. The first part of our conversation aired last week. Please check it out. And as always, thanks for listening. It is a prescription for war, this Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. We continue to face a grave situation in Iran. And the people who knock these buildings down are all of us We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender. I, I learned, you know, in addition to just dealing with the Afghan army, you know, those those guys had a way of working with the locals that commanded a certain degree of respect and balanced, you know, their tremendous capacity for violence, which obviously was real and not just what they were capable of as a small team, but the assets they could bring to bear in terms of aviation. So they could they could muster combat power well and well beyond what you would think 10 men could do, which is why they got really shellacked, you know, in the in, in the actual original operation. The Taliban saw, you know, one six in the middle, three six in the north doesn't seem too appetizing to take those guys on. But down the south, there's just a bunch of Afghans, so they surged some guys down there at the beginning of the fighting. And you know, if you looked at these Af- these lines of Afghan soldiers moving through the fields, you know, you're looking carefully, you might notice that one out of every you know thirty or forty of them like seems a little bit better put together, has a little bit fancier <laughs> gear, you know, maybe He's a radio of some kind, about a foot tall, better nourished. <laughs> and yeah, those guys could really really get get things done but I, I you know i learned a lot about you know i, I mentioned this before but it, for me obviously the first part of the deployment was was super intense in terms of combat and then that continued at sort of a, a reduced but steady drip through like february march and then i don't know if you remember we had a total like one-sided truce like we didn't we didn't agree to anything but the taliban stopped fighting in april poppy harvest. um yeah. during the poppy harvest because everyone wanted to go harvest the poppy and then in may things like absolutely kicked off. And then May, June, July, where I know you guys saw a lot of combat out West and then third platoon saw, I mean, honestly, we all did. My platoon in the middle saw a lot of combat as well. Like those were very violent months. And then on top of it all, for me personally, there was this very complicated like set of political circumstances, kind of like at every level, honestly, like at the, at the Afghan level where, you know, for, for reasons that if you, if you want to know why listeners are welcome to like give OC me a call in our cells, we were representing me to the Afghans as the, as the company commander. So I was dealing with Afghan politics. There, there were Marine politics that I was dealing with. And then, yes, obviously, as you, as you point out, I was making requests and, and, and emailing with people I probably, strictly speaking, shouldn't have been emailing with. But that, that part of the deployment was very intense for me, almost psychologically. And by the end of it, when our, or sorry, our company executive officer redeployed back to the States, which is, which is standard. Your second in command goes back to America early to get, they come to Afghanistan early and they leave early to get things ready back at home. And I became sort of the, the acting XO running the combat operations center, you know, that last, I don't know, six weeks, two months, whatever it was, I, I left the, the, the base much less free. I left our combat outpost much less frequently than I had before then. I would basically just go out to meet with prominent Afghans and do shuras and stuff like that. But for the most part, my my patrolling days were largely in the past. 
and I was in the combat operations center. And some of my most vivid memories, honestly, you know, you talk about anxiety. Like if, I, if I'm likely to think back to anything in Afghanistan, it's, it's those experiences I had on the radio in the combat operations center in those last weeks of the deployment that really vividly stick with me. It's funny. I don't, I don't entirely know why. No, I remember you were in there. We got ambushed on our last day. Yeah, I remember. It was literally the day before the Marines went out and Matt and the ODA guys, the guys that came to our rescue, yep. the URF and helped us out. And uh, yeah, me and you were on the, on the hook trying to figure it out. I, I wasn't actually, I was one of those scenarios where it was very Pulp Fiction, right? Like, oh, <laughs> by the way, we got ambushed by two saws that they had stolen from H&S Company Post. That's right. I forgot. I do remember. Now that you mentioned it, I totally yeah. remember that. Right. So I hold a grudge. But I've also like had the experience of being shot at by the saw. And I tell you, yep. quite, quite an experience. <laughs> effective weapon system. Effective weapon system. Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember that, I love yeah. that rock that was about two feet tall that we got behind <laughs> in, in the middle. <laughs> I but remember yeah, talking to you right after that. Squad leader. And unfortunately, the lieutenant who was supposed to be replacing me was with me. Yeah. We literally took him on the patrol to be like, this is the coolest area. It's the most chill. <laughs> Let's get his feet wet. And then we'll do it. And we didn't make it a hundred yards outside the base and we just got ambushed. Our Afghans came up with RPGs and maneuvered on them and pinned those guys down, actually killed them. And as we kind of maneuvered out of the ambush and stuff like that, but an app, pure Afghan fire team showed up, got on the roof. One of my team leaders, Robert Wood, who's greatest, one of the greatest war fighters I've ever seen. And they maneuvered on them and suppressed the enemy so we could get out of the ambush. And no communications. We didn't talk to anybody. We had just been in combat so much. They had learned how to do it just by following us. And that's what Matt taught me. Matt was like, listen, dude, imagine if, because Matt's a football guy too, right? So he didn't realize how to, how to communicate with him. His dad was a quarterback. Yeah. Professional, yeah, yeah. professional quarterback. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So he knew like how to kind of communicate with me. It was so great. He was like, dude, think about it. Like, think about it. If you're playing high school and then all of a sudden you got to go play in an NFL game. What are you going to do? You're going to do whatever those guys do, right? And you know what I mean? And if they're not doing, you're going to do whatever they do, not what they say. Yeah. Right. You're, it's, it's the most purest example of leadership by example. It is. And that's all it requires. And that's what General Crystal was saying. That's what Matt was saying. And it finally just dawned on me. Like, I need to stop trying to like figure this out. Like it's a problem and just lead these guys. Yeah. And they'll get there. And that was at a critical moment in the middle because we were transiting around the poppy harvest, right? We were transitioning because there was no more contact, more into the clear hole build, right? We're doing more chelator engagements. We're doing those things just because there's no combat, not knowing that basically the Taliban was getting their own offensive ready. When their offensive started, we actually picked up their comms on the little uh, crank radio. Yeah. And our, our interpreters were able to identify it as the language in Pakistan. Or do. Urdu, right. And they're like, that's Urdu, that's Pakistan Taliban. And what we ended up finding out was there's about 50 to 70 of them. And they were coming in. And what they would do was they would come in and attack my position on the West, withdrawal, come back, attack them. They were using that outside desert to move around. They would come attack Jay on his side, right on the mm -hmm. east side. And they were just the same group. They were just kind of moving around. And they were doing the same thing they always do. We're just trying to pull us into an ambush, mm -hmm. right? Just try and bait us into it. 
And that's when we started. So we had some really great lessons from Matt about how to employ these guys. And then tactically, we needed to change our tactics, right? Because the Taliban was adapting to our tactics and they knew who was outside the patrol base, who wasn't, right? And if they didn't know, they're very opportunistic, they were very disciplined. If they didn't know who was out of the, how many people were out of the patrol base, there would be no ambush. They wouldn't attack. But the moment we had everybody in, or at least what they thought was everybody in, they would attack us from all four sides yeah. and try to overrun our fob. And that lasted for probably a couple of weeks. And the day that we kind of cured them of that was a great day. Our gunner, Matt Harris, who is one of my best friends to this day, was a great American, showed up on a convoy with, with a 50 calendar Mark 19. And he said, we're going to solve this problem today. <laughs> and so we placed them up underneath the HESCO so the Taliban can't see. Just looked like we we sent a patrol, we brought everybody back. Here they come, coming to. But this time we had a little bit different recipe for them, and uh, that was the last time we saw those guys. Yeah. So it's we took a great, a great amount of them off the battlefield too. But as soon as we got the attack, we put the fifty and the Mark nineteen up in the two different directions and started wrecking shop. And uh, yeah, that was it. So yeah. it was a great, great time to get to ambush the Taliban. You know what I mean? It was very satisfying. It's funny that the things you would learn that were sort of counterintuitive to anything you'd been taught just because of the local tactical realities. And it's this constant cat and mouse game of evolution. You know, as you do a certain action, the Taliban will try to exploit it in a certain way. As you figure that out, you change and they change because of your change. And for me, the one that sticks with me is, you know, their, their tactic very early on of trying to push us onto terrain that was essentially mined. But with fire that, because, you know, there were a handful of Taliban, you know, I, I, I won't even use the word snipers. There were a handful of them could, that could fire accurately with single shots. There were really not that many of them. You could get unlucky and run into one, but for the most part, and, and by the way, I mean, that's, that's at, at range, you know, 200, 300 right. meters yeah. for the most part, they would push themselves out even further if they could just to get some survivability with respect to the Marines, because obviously we were good at, you know, five, six football fields with our weapons. And when we realized that their fire was genuine, I mean, the first couple of times you get shot at by an AK-47, it's a little unnerving, but over, over time, when you realize that actually these guys were just not very good shots, like generally speaking, not good. Yeah. We realized that actually the right thing to do when you're getting shot at is not, not take cover. Let me take a knee, you reduce your profile. Right. You know, but we, but it was, it was early on, it was the taking cover that was getting us because the cover was mined. So right. we, we found ourselves, you know, by the middle of the deployment early, I mean, honestly, by the second, third week of combat, we, we under fire, we just take a knee. I mean, it, it felt very 18th century in some ways, but like we, we, we took far fewer casualties once we adopted that practice. Yeah. I mean, listen, I'm up, he sees me, I'm down. Yep. You know, there's a reason why we do it. It works. You turn around and engage the enemy, we're taking their cover. Like it's very hard to do mentally because you're trying to seek safety, especially when they're shooting directly at you. Right. Yep. Uh, like if you do the dumb lieutenant things, like you're out in the middle of the field with a map and the antennas, and you're like, No, yep. oh, it's this building. <laughs> you're probably gonna get shot. <laughs> you know, I had a bad habit of that. But you know, I agree. You know, at some point you really be kind of come numb to it. And like, I remember being able to tell when the marksman would shoot because it would shoot at a greater distance. It would shoot one round. And when it go over my head, I could hear the round tumbling. Yeah. Quick snap and whistle, it would be like tumbling, like it's spinning. And I knew, I was like, that's an AK-47. He's outside of 400 meters, right? If it's a marksman rifle, he, he's in the same distance. He's shooting high. 
So he's going to be in this area right here. Yep. Right. And I could like, by the sound of the rounds, I could kind of figure out where those guys were to be able to maneuver on. Yeah. And that was that, that adaptability that we talked about, like just by being out there, doing it, going hundred percent, being out there with the guys, being in contact, you learn so much. You, your OODA loop, right. Your process becomes so fast that you, like you're just in front of the enemy all the time. Right. I developed a, something like a sixth sense for spotting IEDs. I could, I could guess accurately where they all were. I think we probably all could by the end of the deployment. You know, what was crazy was when we cleared that Western junction, we found like 120 IEDs because it was the Southern area. Right. And they had made them. It was brilliant. They had the road, they engaged, they had machine gun bunkers and they had these IEDs that were set up for pressure plates or command debt, right. From their machine gun positions. And it was the exact same tech right? Yeah. The vehicles were going to come in and they were going to engage. And then what are we going to do? We're going to herringbone. That's exactly where those IEDs were. So we found like three and we we're like, Man, like these are pretty uniform. And we started looking at it and like, if that's the case, then there's IEDs here, here, and here. Yeah. Boom, boom, boom. We found all 120 of them. Yeah. So it's, it's July, July of 2010. We've, we've all seen a lot of combat and it's time to go. What were your thoughts, you know, getting on the helos to, uh, to leave Marja? Well, you know, I had lost Pete Rod, Corporal Prado Rodriguez. We had lost him. That was very much weighing heavy on me because we were so good and so lethal. It had made it through this unbelievable deployment with no casualties. We got that right down to the very end. And one of those marksmen was able to kill Corporal Prado Rodriguez while he was on patrol. Of course, it happened in a scenario where there's a dust storm that blows our antenna down. They need a medevac. They just got in contact and I can't talk to anybody. Yeah. Right. And so we're like standing on the roof. I'm sending QRF. I'm standing on the roof, trying to talk on small back to you yeah. <laughs> on the microphone. And that day, and I know I hate on these H and S cats, but in that day we had some combat engineers with us and they had a female comm operator and she pulled up in her vehicle and I gave her the information and she processed that medevac for us and you know if p-rod had a chance he had a chance because of them and she jumped right into the fight with us and from that moment on my respect definitely changed you know what i mean i saw combat support when i needed it and that was a very you know <laughs> humbling right just because of our arrogance being who we are and you know it was very impactful on me obviously losing a marine nothing i have to tell you right but because of like it's almost like my competitiveness, like it was so hard for me to give up. Yeah, you know I mean, and so when we're coming back to get on the helos, I actually volunteered to stay, volunteered to stay twice. I had a campaign plan for the West and I had the guys, I had the Taliban on the run, to be honest with you. They were trying to exploit that, that transition time. And I knew that they were going to be coming in from that area, from my area and setting up to attack these bases, right? And they knew they were going to have green guys out there. And I wanted to exploit that, right? I was trying to exploit the transition in our favor to go and get these guys. But I mean, really because they had killed B-Rod, you know? And so luckily, of course, they didn't let me, <laughs> right? And uh, we left, but I wanted from that point on, I wanted nothing more than go back to Afghanistan fight. And, you know, the Marine Corps manpower was trying to not let me do that, which is ridiculous. You know what I mean? Like, 
especially, you know, all the cowards we saw, the dodging deployments and, you know, or just staying in the fob, you know, our little fobbits, you know, in their eye. Can, can I brag ass. about the, can I brag about the one thing that I actually am quite proud of from this oh, deployment yeah. is I never once from when we left Camp Dwyer in January to when we returned to Camp Dwyer in July. For, for me, I think it was July the 4th. I can't remember the exact day. The, the day in July when we returned, I did not set foot on a Ford operating base. I'm very proud of that fact. And at one point, it looked like they were going to send me through Fob Marja on the way out. And somehow I wiggled out of it. I can't remember. But I, like it was like with days to go. I was like, I got I to gotta keep this streak. I got to yeah. keep this streak. And I did. I'm very proud That's of that. That's a good one. That's a good one. I only had one day on Fob Marja. Well, you 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 founded Fob Marja. I think that gets you some kind of pass. Like you you like I, established established in twenty ten via speed, surprise, and violence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, yeah. That's actually a great. Yeah, I'm the same way. I never, I enjoyed being out. You know what I mean at the point of friction? That's where we're supposed to be. Yeah, you know I mean we're not supposed to be in our ivory tower casting judgment. Yeah, right. Like we're Marines. Go fight. Go fight and win. That's my spiel. But anyways, so after we left, we came back. I don't know if you remember, but I actually ended up being a company commander for Charlie Company. Yeah. It was supposed to be for like two months. Ended up having to do the whole workup. Yeah. During the time, I was experiencing a lot of symptoms from PTSD and head trauma from TBI. So I would get, I would get lost driving to the battalion uh, or driving home. I was having cognitive issues. And then obviously, it was so great to be home. I was going to drink every night. <laughs> yep. it, you know what I'm, you know what I'm forgetting about going back is that day at the beach. Yeah. We were out there and we had just had hamburgers with these beers. We were floating out the water. And we're like, America is such a great place. <laughs> Why do we ever want to leave? <laughs> I know. I actually, I remember, I remember like it was yesterday, you turning to me with a beer in your hand. We may have been sitting down and you said, man, that fucking sucked. Why'd we want to do that so bad? <laughs> well, that's uh, yeah. <laughs> I know. It was like sign me up again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so it's funny. So at that point, I did the whole workup and then changed, you know, companies in in uh, Twenty Nine Palms to the actual company commanders who were actually mostly our IOC instructors, right? Uh, right. Which was fantastic because I had PJ Trimbley, who was my he was my mentor in TBS IOC and. Throughout, and then now he's good. I was at the opportunity to work with them in the fleet, right? I had Eric Quist, right? yep. I, Carl Quist. They come from a great Marine Corps family. Carl Quist is one of our peers, great friend of mine, still in today. As a matter of fact, his son and my son play a little league together. No kidding. Yeah. That's wonderful. That's <laughs> you know, wonderful. So I love the great family. And, uh, you know, I was going to get out. Ashley was pregnant. And, you know, I was like, I got to get out. I got a family now. I can't go back and do this again. Like, you know, it's time for me to, to get out. So I actually denied career designation and I was going to the transition class when George Benson came and got me and him and Anthony Pachoni. Yeah. Like, Listen, we got a mission. I think you'd like, I was like, what is it? Cause I was going to get out. I was going to go to special forces. Yep. I was going to go join Matt and those guys. Like I had seen what, what I thought was extreme, like master of the craft, right? And I was like, that's the place for me, right? Just like we talk about, right? Like, oh, I'm a Marine. Well, I got to be an infantry Marine. I'm like, yeah. hold up. These guys are the next level. I got to get to that. You know what I mean? That's the next challenge. That's the next thing to drive me to be better. And so that was the plan. And then we ended up getting a mission 
where we needed a advisor team, right? It was going to be a small group of guys and we were going to run this Afghan battalion and we were going to employ them in the fight and all these things like that. And I was like, man, that's my kind of party. Yeah. You know, I can't pass that up. And you had training in the sense that you had, you had done it. In I had it. And I had Matt. We had Matt. Yeah. Right. So we bring, so I actually talked Colonel Benson and let me go to Bragg and I trained with Matt and Grady and those guys for about 10 days, which was, I mean, an unbelievable experience. You know what I mean? And I had a chance to talk with Jim Gant, who was there. And it was like, I mean, it was like getting to talk to Michael Jordan, LeBron James about foreign internal defense and how do I employ those guys? Yeah. Right. And I'm a high school quarterback. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and it was just like the wealth of knowledge is unbelievable. And their willingness to help and guide and do the things like they're just, they're fantastic people, absolute warriors. And that's where I really learned about how to employ these Afghans, how to influence them, right? And how to lead them and how to use their command and how to do those things in order to, to make them successful. And a lot of it was just letting them be themselves, letting them fight the way that they need to fight, right? That they want to. And for a lot of them, the way that they were used to fighting was being garrisoned and then going out on a mission and coming back, right? Which is fair because it's basically how every military operates, right? We were the only ones doing this dispersed operations, decentralized type of combat operations. So it was very unfamiliar to them. But our key task was to secure this road. So what Matt and them talked to me about was, hey, if you make... If you align their security with force preservation, the road will always be secure. And so our plan going in was to use them in the, you know, similar as we had done in these checkpoints, right? But the resupply came from checkpoint to checkpoint. Yeah. So they had to clear back if they wanted resupply. And what that created was a clear road. We allowed them to fight like they could fight, right? They want to garrison up and then go out when they need to. And that was very successful. That was a very successful tactic. And it was very Afghan first. We were there if there was a problem. And they knew that I'd be there. I remember you sending, I, I think it was while you were there, you sent me, was it a video? There were definitely pictures, but I think there was a video of you riding like a motorcycle down a paved road. <laughs> we're, out, we're out now. They can't get you now. We're out now. Yeah. Um, and, uh, <laughs> I, but, but what struck me, not only was that hilarious, but what, what struck me about it was as you, as you kind of, there were open spaces in Marja Shore, but you, you know, you might get shot at as you try to, you try to walk across one of them. But for the most part, the deployment that we did together felt extremely claustrophobic, like walking out the door, like our two positions where second platoon was and where first platoon was for the second, what the half of the deployment you were taking. Couldn't have been. Were they a thousand meters apart? I don't know if they quite were a, a full thousand meters apart. I want to say it was right around two. You think so? You think, think it was it that was, far? I, I, well, it wasn't two, but it was close to two. Okay, you, 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 it's, it's it's over. It's over a decade ago. You may well be right. In I'm any event, all the brain damage. So. Let's okay. <laughs> let's <laughs> let's say let's say it was eighteen hundred meters. That's about a mile. You know, you can put on your sneakers and do a nice easy jog of that in substantially less than 10 minutes. But to, you know, put on your full gear and walk there in an infantry squad formation was a significant life decision. Like just walking back and forth between our two positions was quite literally a military operation because there were people trying to kill you 
in between the two. So like that's the yeah. scale, like the kind of micro scale of that deployment for us, you know, and this sort of sense of constant, like, like not just, I, I'm sure you had danger in, in the second deployment as well, of course, but the sense of the danger, just like breathing down your neck, being like literally around the corner. Just across and the street. Just across, literally across the street. And then to see that video of you, you know, a province over, this was, was it, was it, is it Nimrod's Nimrod. province? Yeah, yeah Nimrod's Nimrod. province, just like in these wide open spaces, still fighting a war, but like obviously a very different kind of war. I remember finding that really striking. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, read Jim Gant's book, what run tribe at a time. It works. There's a reason why, you know, they found it in Osama bin Laden's house, right? Like they, he had it figured out. And what he figured out was you could take a couple highly trained guys that are motivated, right? That are good dudes that want to warriors that want to get out there and fight and they can lead all the Afghans they need to. Right. And here's how you do it. And that's what he talked to me about. And so we became, we took a seat back, but when it came time to lead, right, we had to step up in that role. They needed us to fill that role and, and close the gaps. And the more we did that with them, the better they got at it, right? There was no training we could do. We just went and did operations and they learned real quick. And that's, that's what Jim and those guys taught us. But, you know, I was set up for success on that point from the very beginning. Colonel Benson had been on an advisor team. He had seen kind of like the good, the bad, and the ugly with that. And he said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to give you opportunity to basically screen and assess the best NCOs we have in the battalion. And all of them are going on your team, right? And so I ended up, we had two teams. We had like a military police team that I had to send some really great guys to. They kind of held more of a static position. They had kind of their own deployment up there. And they had very rough. Same with, they had a group down in Marja. It was kind of doing theirs that was led by a great lieutenant and he was doing great things down there. And then I had like my group, right? And originally we were supposed to be working with the battalion. Like I was supposed to be the battalion's main effort with these Afghans. Well, as soon as we got in country, we get poached from that by RCT-8 and Colonel Smith, who's now General Smith, the assistant commandant, I believe. But anyways, so we go and we work for him and he's probably one of the best Marine leaders I've ever met. Like he was fantastic. And my job, I was a first Lieutenant. The, the role was supposed to be a major. So now I'm in a major's billet as a first Lieutenant. And he basically told me, OC, I've got Musa clay. I've got the Kajaki dam. I have all these issues going on. Nimron's province. I've got 200 kilometers of road that goes straight to Iran. He's like, I need somebody to take care of that, but I don't have any more forces. I need you to take this Afghan force to secure that road. And I mean, you know, I mean, it's no problem. He's like, yeah, six months to do it. I'm, like, I mean, I'm all, this is my kind of party, you know? And so we had four gun trucks, ended up with about 1,200 Afghans, ANA, and we cleared 200 kilometers of road and secured it in about three and a half months. We did, um, we did. I think 12 deliberate operations with them. We actually did the first brigade level operation. It's our very last one. And I will tell you that we had the best relationship with those Afghans. I, you know, I still have all the gifts they've given me. Great relationship with the leadership. But you know, we didn't teach the individual soldier, right? We taught the leadership and we held the leadership accountable. Yeah. And we gave them real, real world training. And but we respected each other very much, right? So very early on, the key that Matt told me was you have to be ultra responsive, right? 
And if something happens to them, you got to be on. They have to realize that it's trust that you're coming to help them and that they can trust you. And if you can build that trust with them, you'll be successful in your deployment. You're not going to have to worry about them throwing grenades in your tent, right? And stuff like that that was happening. So it was like, okay. So we really, really focused on that. And I had some key Marines that were also the Muslim faith, right? That were in my COC, that were leaders in there. And that initially gave us very good rapport, right? Just comfort, right? And then as, and as I was introduced and I worked with the commander, they began to trust us. The first key to that was the first medevac we did for him for a second chest wound. As soon as we got it, we bounced QRF. And I mean, we were on that guy in like 32 minutes, medevac him in under an hour. And the Afghans were just like, holy shit, these dudes are legit. We responded like two days later, we responded to an attack on one of our positions and was able to maneuver on the Taliban and take them down. And it it just solidified everything. So from that point on, it was one operate, operate, right? We would plan, prepare, do the operation, recover. And we just did it over and over and over again, right? And we just repeated that same process and they just fell into it. And I mean, I had sergeants that were filling the roles as captains. Yeah. Right. My intelligence officer was an 0351 sergeant. He was a smart <laughs> Marine I had. <laughs> and he was brilliant. You know what I mean? These guys, these Marines, because even though they were NCOs and officer billets, I could I didn't have time to micromanage those guys. We really didn't even know what we were doing. Right. And so they just took ownership of it. They had to. All our lives were dependent on it. Yeah. And then you see those guys perform at that level. It's just like, you know, they don't even need us. <laughs> probably prefer not to have us <laughs> for sure um so 2012 you, you come home from this the second deployment and i want to talk to you about the the aftermath and we'll let's talk big picture and kind of politics in afghanistan first and then i don't know, i want to talk to you about the personal aftermath on the politics side i mean just briefly speaking for myself like you know by 2012 things that in 2010 i thought were unlikely had actually occurred like the marine corps had had pacified the Helmand River Valley kind of amazingly when you consider how violent it was when we got there. And yeah. things were things were broadly speaking going going well, at least at a superficial level. I think at a deeper level, it was obviously unstable. And so this this is my point, at least to my question. Like to me, when I left in 2010 and then watching kind of from the sidelines, you going back, it was pretty very little that happened later when the Marines started to draw down, you know, 13, 14 and on. Very little that happened after that surprised me. It depressed me. It it, yeah. it, made, it it upset me. But I was I was unsurprised to watch the whole thing fall apart as rapidly as it did. You know, as soon as you basically took Americans out of the area, it kind of went back to Taliban control. And I was unsurprised last year at the the pace of the final collapse. That that I I, I was like, well, what what were what were you expecting exactly? Yeah. Of, of course. Did 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 you have? I'm curious to know. Did you have a similar experience? Did you did you think things were going to hold on for longer? Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, when we went back on that second deployment, we were like, "Holy shit, this works!" Like we're winning. Yeah, we're winning, and we're winning big. You know what I mean? And you know, and I know there's a lot of experts out there, right, who know everything about coin and how it's not effective. But I'm here to tell you, there's going to be a local population no matter where you go. Yeah, right. And it's always going to be a factor. It's a part of warfare. Right. You just have to adapt to it and stop complaining, even though that means you have to listen to people who deployed to Afghanistan. I get it. But anyways, like we were winning hands down. I mean, was it perfect? No. Was it better than before? Yeah. Right. 
And the, and the definition was not in, hey, there's no contact. Really, it was, look at how prosperous these bazaars are. Look at how many people, like Aaron, I'm telling you, when we went there, we went to Marja first and we went on seven time. We're like, what's our route? And they're like, oh, let's go right up elephants. And we're like, fuck you. Kiss <laughs> 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 my ass though. <laughs> you know what I mean? And they're like, it's a, oh, it's a bad sure. neighborhood in our, yeah. our deployment. Me and Anthony, me and Anthony Bichoni were like, no way, bro. And uh, they took us down. Sure enough, we get there. And, I mean, people walk around with no gear. There's, I mean, crowds of people at these bazaars and things like that. And it was just prosperous. Yeah. And I was like, holy shit, this works. Like we're doing it right. We're going to win. And going into my advisor team, right. And we were able to work with those guys and, and really influence them. Right. And be one of the very, most successful advisor teams that we had. Right. Like I did more operations as a first lieutenant advisor team leader than any of the other majors right in our advisor group because they wanted to go teach them stuff on powerpoint <laughs> you know what i mean and i taught them combat so when we left after my advisory team deployment i wanted to go to marsoc because obviously i want to get back to afghanistan right and it was we were winning right i felt like the momentum was on our side and i didn't want to do anything else but push that pile over the goal line you know what i mean and i really thought that i had the keys to do it like, I really felt like I had them figured out and I knew how to do it and not going back because I had to go on a B-billet was like, is killing me. Also, I was having a lot of mental issues because on the second deployment, we hit an IED with my vehicle and little contact from that. And then right after, and I had pretty bad, like it rang my bell pretty bad. I could tell, but you know, it was my first time getting blown up. Yep. Right. And I was like, well, it wasn't so bad. And then the next one hit and, you know, it was definitely like a feel of difference, but I'm so focused in the fight. We fought through the next day. We're back at our patrol base and I'm walking to the COC and I just pass out. Yeah. And the corpsman, you know, look, I get to the corpsman and he's like, oh shit, sir. Like what's wrong with you? I was like, I think I'm having a heart attack. And so, you know, he gave us some meds or whatever. I took a rest and I was like, all right, I feel better. He's like, no, we got to get you checked out. So, and we needed to do a resupply anyway. So we, we were doing our resupply to get ready for our next mission, right? We were in that recover phase and we we're getting ready to plan and execute the next mission. But really we were in the planning phase at this point. So I went back and they checked me out and they were basically, you know, like, listen, you know, we have to medevac you. You don't have any choice. Like if you don't, this is going to have lasting effects throughout the rest of your life, right? We don't know exactly what it is, but something's going on and we're going to medevac you. Of course I said, no. And they're like, it doesn't work like that. Like, you know, you got to go. So, okay, very well. I was like, well, at least let me go brief my guys. Which they accepted, like, no problem. Walked out with my corpsman. And as we left the tent my corpsman, I told him, if you tell anybody about this, I'll kill you. I'll shoot you myself. We got back in the ride and they're like, sure, you good? I was like, I'm good. Let's roll. <laughs> <laughs> we rolled out the gate never to be heard from again. <laughs> Amazing. So, uh, and honestly, that did catch up with me. Like, that doctor was right. But, you know, leadership's a burden, right? We're, we're there to sacrifice for our Marines. And all those Marines came home. They're all alive today. And they have families and jobs. And it's beautiful. And whatever it was that happened to me after that, like, I'm good with it. Yeah, man. And, I got blown yeah. up. And the next mission, I got blown up again. So I had basically been blown up three times in like 72 hours. And that last explosion was when... 
I could tell a difference. Like I could tell that I was really hurt. Yeah. And, you know, I was just able to push through, right? They were giving me Valium, which was awesome in a gunfight. <laughs> <laughs> I was standing up like, I'm pretty sure they're right there, you know? <laughs> but that got me through the deployment. And then we got back and I was going to Morsau. And just had my son, little Osi, not so little anymore. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, I was ready to go to Morsau. I was ready to get back in the fight. And, you know, I was having a lot of issues. And Ashley, my wife, you know, she's, she's tougher than all of us. You know, she set me down and I was like, listen, you got to you take care of yourself. We give a family now and you're not okay. And so we decided, hey, we're going to, you know, not go to Morsau. Right, let's let's do the right thing here. But I'm definitely not talking to any of the doctors because they'll just medically retire me. And this is our career. So I had orders to TBS to go be a, a SPC, but there was also a billet in Texas at a joint task force there, joint task force north to do counter narcotics, counterterrorism. And so I was like, hey, kill two birds with one stone, right? I get actually back home to Texas. She's with her family, and I get to go operate on the south- southwestern border. Like, that's the ticket. Let's do that. <laughs> like, if I can't get to Afghanistan, right, at least let me go fight the cartels. Like, if I got to be home for a while, let me do something fun. And so we did that. And that was the time when I ended up actually getting medically retired the first time. I lost consciousness on a border patrol mission. And, you know, there was people around. I lost consciousness driving down the freeway with my full board colonel. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there was no hide it anymore. Yeah. And it was so advanced at the time and they were so backed up. Like they just put me in the HOV lane for medical retirement, even though I'm like kicking and screaming. And so I fought it for 18 months afterwards. They ended up putting me, I, I, I appealed and I was able to get temporary retirement. Right. And so I was like, okay, so there's a chance I can come back in 18 months. And they're like, yeah, if you heal up, right. You show progress and everything like that. You're, and you can pass all the training to come back in you can come back in. So I was like, all right, well, that's the ticket. I got 18 months. It ended up being about 22 months that I did that. But as soon as I got the opportunity to come back in, I jumped right back in. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and and so, so on this, this whole, like, I mean, not to be dramatic about it, but like the second war, third war, if you count your first two deployments, each as a war, you've been fighting against, you know, traumatic brain injury and, and everything else. What have you learned? What would you, what would you say to others who, who are in a similar situation or maybe actually even more valuably, like, those who don't know yet that they're yeah. going to be. Well, there's a, yeah, there's a lot of stuff out here. And the thing that I tell people is the work works, right? The work works, but you got to go do the work, right? And I wanted to hide everything so long because I knew it was going to keep me from going back into the fight. You know what I mean? And I was just so like, the, you know, in my mind, and, you know, maybe like, you know, it's a little egotistic, but I just wanted to be there for the Marines. You know what I mean? I wasn't confident in the leadership that they were having in a lot of ways. And so that was, that was the struggle. I didn't do the work. Right. And now I'm in a position where I was medically retired twice, right? Gold star and move second award. <laughs> I think I still think that I'm the only person to do it. I want to have really fame there in the Marine Corps. You know what I mean? So they probably don't let people do it anymore, <laughs> but you know, I didn't really do any work in those 18 months. I just covered it up, tried to put it away, kept training, and when I had the opportunity to come back in, I did. Eventually, right, as things are gonna do, it's gonna catch up to you. And 
while I was at two fours getting ready. I done company command and deployment successfully and I started having seizures. And, you know, obviously that's the end of the line, right? <laughs> Active medical retirement. And I went to business school to try and like keep my mind occupied from dealing with the graduate from business school, starting businesses. I was doing all these things. And then I had a massive seizure. And, you know, I'm talking about to the point where it took me a couple of weeks just to walk unassisted. Yeah. Right. And the whole reason I went that whole spectrum is because I didn't trust the doctors to do the work. You know what I mean? And so now part of this process, we're using psychedelic therapies and we're doing these things to help me do these processes. And what I'm learning is the work works, but you have to do it. And you have to, just like everything in the Marine Corps, right? You got to, you're going to get out what you put in. And there's so many people going off the rails now and, you know, going to the Joshua Tree and just taking a shitload of shrooms and being like, I'm healed. It's like, bro, you're not healed. Right. It's a process. It's work. And then when you get to a point where you're stable, you have to maintain. Right. And I talked to my best friends from those deployment, Ryan Sparks, Anthony Piccioni, Matt Black, right. And you and all our buddies. And the one thing is still the same, right. If you do some basic daily health things for yourself, right. You, and you learn how to decompress and do these things to take care of your mindset and you do the work in between, like you'll be good. Right. You're not going to be probably as good as you used to be. Right. But, but you're going to be good emotionally. You know what I mean? And that's to me, is super important. And I've, I've learned to trust that process. Right. Yeah. I've understand what that means. You know, we say it to our athletes all the time, right? You got to trust the process. You got to trust the process, but being somebody who's been in processes like that, like it's terrible, <laughs> right? It's terrible. You really don't feel like you're getting anywhere until you finally see that first glimpse of progress. Right. And if you grab a hold of it, use that as your motivation, then you just keep taking those steps, man. Just like, it's like every shitty thing that we did, right? You yeah. just one foot in front of the other and eventually you get there. Oh, see, I'm, I'm grateful to you for, uh, for coming on the show. We, you know, a lot of these episodes focus on, you know, not just history, but even, even ancient history. And this obviously is an opportunity for folks to hear, you know, testimony kind of from, from not that long ago. Um, from someone who was right in the middle of it. And I, I have to say, you know, even, even from our early days together, when I thought you might actually literally kill me <laughs> and, and this podcast, you know, it's, it's audio only, so we can see each other right now on zoom. The listeners can't see you, but just, just know that if you could see us, you would see that OC probably could and would have killed me if he had chosen to at the time. But I knew, I knew even then that you were, you were an amazing Marine. And I have to say, you know, if America just has, you know, a half dozen OCs or so in each of its wars will, uh, will be okay. And it's my, it's really, it, it's a, it's a great honor of my life to know you. Yeah. And you know, to be honest with you, man, I said the same about you, you know, it really was, we, we, we did something special. You can't see it, but that article from the Swansboro times of us that dinner before <laughs> we went, yeah. always be held up in my house and in my parents' house. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That, that group that we had us, we were very special and it will always be special to us because I mean, we left it all on the line out there. I mean, we, it's like I tell athletes all the time. I'm very fortunate right now as part of my therapy is that I'm a volunteer football coach at Santa Margarita Catholic high school here. And the coaches are phenomenal guys, a bunch of NFL players. And they've basically taken me in, given me a safe place to work, rebuild myself, motivate and train young men while I'm in this process of 
still recovering. You know what I mean? And, you know, strictly volunteer. I can kind of come and go as I need, but they've just created this opportunity for me. And that just goes to show you, like, when the collapse of Afghanistan happened, right? And, like, people were losing their mind on social media. We question ourselves, like, was it worth it? Like, did we really do anything out there? You know what I mean? And then you see Americans like this, right? You see Americans like Coach Rousier, the guys I'm working for, Adam Franco, you know, these coaches, these people that I work with that are just totally willing to say, hey, it's going to take time out of my day. It's going to be a little bit harder, but you're worth it. And it's, it's unbelievable. It's an unbelievable experience. And it's helping me. You know what I mean? America is worth it. They're worth it. They don't show it on Facebook, but they're worth it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they really are. And, you know, the military civilian gap has always been something that's very hard, right? Because they're two very different worlds. They're extremely different, right? This world is about materialism and, you know, being the best, right? And the Marine Corps is about protecting your brothers, your brothers and your sisters, right? Your, your Marines. It's about sacrifice, the honor, courage, and commitment. Like what, you know, what organization do you know outside the Marine Corps that has keywords like that? You know, and it's just, it, it's why it's very special. And like I said, you know, we don't always show it, but the thing that gives me hope and the thing that keeps me driving is I keep meeting these just unbelievable Americans. And they're just citizens. They're not warriors like us. They're not, you know, whatever, but they're great citizens. They're great people. And the more you run into it, the more you're like, you know, it went down the way it's going to go. I mean, let's be serious. Like, it was always going to kind of, we had to leave eventually, right? Somebody had to pull the plug and it wasn't going to be pretty. And it wasn't. But at the same time, like, you know, we led by example out there. Those people in Afghanistan know, they know what right looks like. They know what freedom looks like. We've told them, right? They've experienced it firsthand by just knowing us. Now it's up to them. Do you know what I mean? If they want to be free and they want to do these things, they know what they know what it looks like. And you know, I'm hopeful for them. I really am. Like I know it's not going great now, but you know, the Afghan people, I believe in them. The people that I work with, people that I believe in them very much. And I think that I think that they will be successful over there. It's going to be their version, not ours. Right. But it will be there. And I'm hoping that they finally get some peace out of it because they've had a lot of war on their hands. OC, thanks for coming on the show, man. Simplify. Simplify, brother. We'll talk to you soon. This is a Nebulous Media production. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.